repeat. Hello, I'm Farmer Charles, a dairy, beef and arable farmer from Warwickshire. And I'm Dr Rachel, an NHS GP from Oxfordshire. And this is The Pharmacy. So alongside farming, my passions are helping people to understand how their food is produced, where it comes from and how we as farmers are looking to protect and enhance the environment around us. And I'm passionate about empowering people to take control of their own health and well-being by giving them the information they need to make better lifestyle choices. But we know that the story doesn't end there. We're going to interview people from all walks of life to find out their perspective on food, health, where it all comes from and how it all fits together. This is The Pharmacy. Hello and welcome to episode eight of The Pharmacy podcast. Today we have bee farmer Matt Ingram from Staffordshire who is going to be joining us. We're going to be talking all about honey, the health benefits and the environmental and farming benefits. Um, really looking forward to that today. But first of all, Charlie, how's things? Um, it's been testing to say the least. Um, so <laughs> we've been doing quite a bit of building work on the farm recently, trying to tidy the place up and it, it looks spectacular. We've completely ripped up the farmyard and put a whole new concrete yard in place. We've put new drainage system in, we've put new water mains in, which was great. And now we're finished. Um, we've had the slight problem that we worked out that we've cut off one of our main water supplies. So having completed all this work, we've now got to start ripping it up tomorrow. <laughs> oh dear. Did you did you project manage that? Um no comment. <laughs> <laughs> And can I just ask, um, not wishing to be too political, but how are you feeling about getting rid of Therese Coffee? We, we we pushed her over from health. We handed her to you and you, you've got rid of her. You've got Steve Barkley as a second hand-me-down. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, we can ignore your hand-me-downs. Um, yeah, I can't believe she lasted as long as she did. Um, and I just, I don't know. We seem to, I think everybody's the same. We keep getting Secretary of States that, don't really know what they're talking about, don't understand their uh, remit, and we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I have to say I am mm, slightly concerned about the fact that our new health minister um, is married to the head of British Sugar. Um, when we have been talking about some of those issues with David Unwin a few weeks ago, we'll see how that goes. I have slight, slight reservations about that link. Yeah, but you've not got too much to worry about because you've had, what, four in the last two years. So uh, you're not going to have anything <laughs> long, are you? Good point. Good point. Anyway, on a lighter note, let's let's meet um, Matt Ingram. So as I say, he is a bee farmer and he is the founder of Holt Hall Apiary in Staffordshire, which was founded in 2018. He currently manages 180 hives and processes 150,000 jars of honey each year. 
He has recently won the National Young Farmers Entrepreneur of the Year for his amazing work. And even more recently, the Birmingham and Staffordshire Agricultural Society Young Entrepreneur Award. So I'm really interested to hear all of the the great work you're doing in Staffordshire, my home, my homeland. Um, lovely to have you on, Matt. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So, first of all, can you tell us how you got into bee farming and and how you've built your business and what it's all about? Yeah, so it's a bit of a strange journey, really. Um, I was brought up on a on a farm, um, and as a child, farming is what I was going to do. There was absolutely no question about it. Um, but as I got older, I sort of grew away from that. Um, I went to uni uh, and did accounting. So my actual degree is in accounting. Um, I was actually doing a placement year um, in mergers and acquisitions. So a far cry from beekeeping. Um, but I just thought, well, I, I quite fancy having a couple of hives in the corner of a field. I thought at the time, well, it, it can't be that difficult. Um and so I think it was around my 21st, I got a couple of hives. Um, and initially that's what it was going to be, a bit of a hobby, back on farm um, most weekends. And then I just got absolutely hooked by it. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, at the time, as I say, it was just supposed to be a hobby. Then I started to see, okay, we can have a few more hives and a few more. Uh, then I got very carried away. Um, then I started to speaking to other local farmers and being able to put things on their, their land as well. Um, and the public really wanted local honey. Um, and big quality local honey quite difficult to come by. Um, and so we just kept increasing them. And uh, as you say, now we're processing for other people. So we're doing a, a large volume of honey um, with beekeeping still at the heart though. So still throughout the summer, favourite job is it's got to be going out and checking checking on all the bees. Um, I absolutely love doing just sort of rounds, going around the farms um, that we've got. We've got about 10 or 15 different farmers we work with at any one time. Um, and it's great to be able to go out and see what everybody's up to, have a chat with them as we go. Um, a lot of them are friends through young farmers, so that's always quite a nice little catch-up. Um, and, yeah, I, I just love going and seeing what, what the bees are up to always a real challenge with bees like most animals they can't tell you what's what's going on um you haven't got a vet you can call on with the bees either particularly so uh it's always problem solving trying to figure out what they're what they're up to how you can fix it or improve it or anything so every every day is a bit of a, a school day with them that's for sure Brilliant. And so, and so you've built up, so you've got, you're obviously producing huge amounts of, of honey now. Um, it feels like the public have got, have kind of fallen back in love with honey over the last few years. Do you feel like your demand has increased? Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a real calling for, um, I think, local produce in general. Um, I think throughout COVID, we saw a real resurgence. Um, we particularly used to, but we still do a few farmers markets and things like that. And throughout COVID, there was a real sort of reconnection, I think, with the public and wanting to know where that food's come from. Um, so that that did as well. And particularly, there's, there's sort of a lot of interest in local honey uh, as being good for you. Um, and a lot of people really, that's sort of been passed down through family members, I think. Um, and so at certain times of year, when it's sort of cold and flu season, the jar of local honey at the back of the, the cupboard sort of makes a resurgence. 
um, in their hot drinks or anything like that. Um, and so I think the local public sort of trying to tie back in with their roots a little bit, maybe, and, and find good quality local products. And um, we're looking at Honey's one of them. You know, I've, I've got to ask, I don't know whether you know this or you, Rach. Um, so I, I, I suffer terrible hay fever. Yep. And they all say you should be eating local honey for secure. Is there any truth in that? It's a difficult one. Technically, there's no evidence for it. Uh, and we'll always say that um, when everyone asks. The amount of people that swear by it um, has come up to this. Nothing else has worked. This has been what's done it for us. I don't know. And we'll get that countless times on, on a market through the, the spring. So, no, there's no actual empirical evidence that it works. But the sheer volume of people that swear by it, I think that that's all we can ever tell people is, you know, it's working for a lot of people, but not yeah. sure why. But, I mean, there's a great theory behind it, because the idea is that basically if you um, if your immune system meets um, antigens, basically the pollen um, via your gut, um, it reduces your risk of having allergic responses. And that's the theory behind it. So yeah. if you have the local the local honey, it's got the local pollen in. And so it, it sounds brilliant. As you say, Matt, unfortunately, there isn't any evidence that it works. Um, but you know what? It's it, it's not going to do you any harm with your hay fever. Um, and as you say, anecdote kind of, you know, and, and maybe it is a bit of a placebo effect. But if it makes people feel happy, I'm, I'm happy with that. There's definitely worse things to be taken. Yeah, exactly. Um, so can you can you explain so uh, to our listeners what the real importance is of beekeeping and and honey production in the UK with regards, you know, the rest of our crop production and food production? OK, so um, about a third of the crops that, that we eat, a third of the foods we eat rely directly on insects to, to pollinate them that's all your sort of top fruits and soft fruits and apples pears raspberries strawberries all of them um are reliant on bees and and insects all insects really but honeybees are the ones that really do the the work behind it the, they've got the numbers in the colonies um and so pretty much all commercial growers will be in contact with beekeepers um who will uh, the time, well, when their crop is in flower, we'll speak to the beekeeper, have the bees moved on to site. Um, it allows for very, very specific pollination. So if you imagine in the supermarket, if you have a look at all the apples and the pears, they're all pretty much identical. They're all more or less the same shape and size. If you under pollinate a tree, you end up with very few large fruit. And if you over pollinate a tree, you end up with lots of very small fruit. So by using a beekeeper, you can literally almost start and stop pollination uh, because you know when the, the beekeeper's arriving because you've sort of contracted them to be there. They're there for a certain amount of time. And at the point at which they sort of evenly set the flowers, the beekeeper can then move the hives away again. Um, then you get very uniform growth of, of your fruit across a large area. The major issues that, that we seem to see is, is sort of monocultures, really monocrops. So where you've got one vast area of fruit tree, uh, for instance, the wild pollinators that are there, the native pollinators just can't do that job effectively enough. It's just too vast an area. Um, and that's why managed honeybee colonies specifically are required to sort of get that 
you see that in the massive extremes in America for almonds. That's the famous one that you tend to hear about. Um, but we do it to a smaller scale here in the UK as well for things like apples and pears. Um, so massively important for pollination, but it's not just fruits, uh, oilseed rape. So um, your oilseed rape oil, honeybees make a massive impact on, on the crop from that. So if it's stocked at about half an acre, um, I think the, the studies show up to about a 30 or 40% increase in yield when you've very, very heavily stocked it. Most beekeepers won't be stocking the field to a hive an acre. It's just not really feasible. Um, but it shows the, the massive impact. I mean, a 40% increase in a crop um, is, is enormous. And that's solely down to the amount of bees that you can put there, the sort of foraging power that, that you can just place in a field. Um, they, they make a massive, massive impact to food production itself. And you, you wouldn't get it without the bees. Yeah, I think there's a statistic I came, well, I'd heard this before and I just looked it up before this interview as well. Um, they claim that um, bees are worth £600 million, is it, to the UK economy? And that'll be yeah. for their pollination as well, as well as the honey. And Yeah, exactly. There's loads of services, like say, the pollination is sort of separate to the honey production. Um, but yeah, a massive impact they have on, on everything, everyday life that we take for granted, really. Yes. Matthew's got his uh, got his bees on our place, and we always cite them where we've got all seed rape. We've never actually done specific yield monitoring to see if there is any difference, but definitely we've seen a difference where the bees are. It has improved yields substantially when we've got all seed rape. That is, <laughs> that's the thing this year. Are there are there some farms that don't use this, and and is it that there are specific areas in the country that need to do to bring bees in because the the natural um, groups are not there? Um, yeah, so it differs on the farm. So ones that are grown under polytunnels, like strawberries and raspberries, they actually tend to use um, a type of bumblebee rather than honeybees. Um, so they're managed bumblebees, which is very different. Um, and it tends to be more down south, really, but that's because that's mainly your fruit growing regions. Um, it's not uncommon for beekeepers to be moving them round um, onto borage, for instance, which, again, you tend to find a bit more down south. And then for the beekeeper themselves, moving them up onto the heather moors. Um, so that's not necessarily for a farmer's point of view, but it's for the beekeeper's point of view, um, because each each crop produces a very different type of honey, some very sought after. Uh, and so it's worth the beekeeper moving their hives around to sort of source individual honeys, individual crops. So how would you, so as as you say, this is now an industry where people move their hives around. How can you explain how the natural um, bee population has changed over, I don't know, what kind of period, kind of 20 years or so, that this, is, this has become more of a regular occurrence? Yeah, so the sort of native pollinators are struggling um there's a lot of press about save the bees and everything like that but it all tends to focus around honeybees actually honeybees are managed you know i'm there if there's an issue i can solve it i can treat for varroa mite which is a massive issue that honeybees face um you know if they're starving we can add food to them uh because they've not been able to produce enough for themselves wild pollinators they don't have that your solitary bees don't have somebody there that can feed them if they've not produced enough or treat them for disease 
And so actually, we see the native pollinators are the ones that are declining. Actual honeybees, relatively stable, um, if anything, increasing with a greater interest in beekeeping um, over the last few years. So we tend to think, save the bees, honeybees, but actually it's more your, your native pollinators and they're much more difficult to, to look after. Um, that very much is where you're sort of planting of wildflowers and creating habitat. They're the ones that benefit greatly from, from those initiatives um, because there's nothing else really that you can do to encourage or, or help them other than providing sort of habitat for them and food. So numbers of bees are definitely declining, but they, they're sort of your native ones. It's more or less the same across all of the UK. And to be honest, I think if you looked across most of the world, you'd see a very similar pattern as well. Um, so it's it's not something unique necessarily to us. If anything, I think we're probably doing far more than, than a lot of other places. So it's just a case of being able, encouraging members of the public as well um, to sort of plant full pollinators. And it's not necessarily just honeybees. Um, you get a lot of people, or we have a lot of inquiries about people wanting to take up beekeeping to save the bees. And it's, it's just not the right way to go about it. You'd be far better planting some wildflowers in your garden than taking up beekeeping. It's something we have to be really careful with as well, because we can suddenly move, you know, two or three million bees into one little area. Uh, we will decimate a local population if we aren't careful. So we have to be really responsible with how many hives we move to an area make sure that that area can definitely support the amount of hives that we're putting there. Otherwise, our bees will outcompete any native pollinator that was already there. Um, so we just have to be careful, know what we're moving them on to. So obviously, rape, for instance, we know we can put quite a lot of hives there without an impact. Um, whereas through the summer, when you're just down to sort of bramble and clover and no massive individual flower, maybe slightly more careful as to how many colonies we, we put in one place um, so that we're not damaging the ecosystem that we've moved into really i know a, a few years ago there, there was talk there was, there was was it a disease that was going around the bees native bees and decimating populations um there's a few there's something called chronic bee paralysis virus that's been knocking yeah. up um around it's been around for quite a long time but there's been a real sort of resurgence of it in the last couple of years um it's a really nasty one, been a virus, and honeybees particularly, you, you can't treat for it. There's nothing we can do. It's a real pain. We've had it in quite a few colonies over the last two years. Um, it really becomes a, they either survive it or that they don't. They eventually dwindle down. That gives you the advantage of being able to breed from successful stock is the only good thing because you know that the ones that have survived have already got over and through that virus. So there must be some immunity there. Um but there isn't something that we can just sort of sprinkle some medicine over them and they'll recover from. Um, so it's it's really difficult. And it's not like other animals where you can just pen them in a field and hopefully they stay there. Um, our bees are going to fly. They're going to mingle with hives, other hives that might also be diseased. Um, and you can't stop your bees from sort of communicating and um feeding from the same place as other bees and so it's very easy to spread disease between yeah. colonies that are local um and it's a, it is a real difficult subject um with with beekeeping um, and being able to identify it early so that hopefully you can sort of put some measures in place to avoid it spreading into your other colonies um but that's all down to really just good management 
um, between sites and things like that. Uh, and what about the other threat that we always hear so much about in the papers constantly is people like me, I'm out killing the bees 24-7. Farmers <laughs> uh, using the chemicals that we use uh, or the tabloids believe that we use. Uh, and the one specifically, uh, although it was banned in 2018, is the use of neonicotinoids. Have you seen any difference in your bees, which are mainly, like say, you use a lot of seed rape and neonicotinoids are used as a seed dressing in seed rape. So pre and post 2018, have you seen any difference? No. <laughs> um, it's always been a bit... I, when it happened, I was sceptical, I'd say. I mean, the, the, the issue that we actually have now is without the seed dressing, two issues. One, one is that the crops aren't growing so well. So that means when we come to phone all the farmers through the winter to move our bees on in the spring, they say, oh, actually, we've not got any all seed rape this year or it's not looking too good. Um, and so our major crop, which would probably account for about 40% of, of what we'll produce in a year, which is a crop off oil seed rape or sp the spring crop can be not there occasionally. Um, or we have to work harder to try and find find a farmer that's got a, a decent field of it. Um, the other is the removal of the seed dressing can end up being then used as a spray instead, not the neonicotinoid, but other sprays are then used. Yeah, yeah. Which to me, I'd much rather it be buried in the ground. Yeah. Um, I don't know it comes up through the flower, but I'd rather that than it actually be sprayed because I think that has potential, and most farmers will do it very responsibly, and it won't have an issue. But I think it's got potential to do more damage um, than the seed dressing initially had anyway. Um, I know why they did it, and I'm sure there's some evidence to say that it would save some bees. But I think actually in the bigger picture, when you then think, okay, we've removed a food source or potentially removing a food source and the alternatives, I think actually it might be the sort of lesser of two evils, if that makes sense. I, I don't see it as the big issue that is made out to be. It's uh, the removal of it has been an absolute nightmare for us. Yeah. Um, we we've hardly had a decent crop of rape since we've been banned from using the dressing. Um, this year's crop, sorry to tell you, Matt, doesn't look great. Um, You're not the only one, no. But I mean, it, it's got flea beetle in it now. Um, we've sprayed it three times. Um, so three times we've been through with an insecticide, which isn't great. I mean, every time we actually spray at night. Yeah. Um, but it's still not ideal. But one of the frustrating things to me is you, you go, you see these tabloids and it's farmers using this chemical that's getting in the groundwater and everything. Uh, and there was a, a, a recent article um, in one of the papers that was talking about, I think it was, I can't remember, it's the River Y or the River Lug, but really high levels of neonicotinoids in that river. Yeah. And people say, well, it's been banned in all seed rape. The only other use in farming is occasionally it's given license for sugar beet yeah. uh, because it's a non-flowering crop, but there's mm -hmm. none grown in that area and there hasn't been a license in the last 12 months. And then somebody pointed out that the actual active ingredient, oh, should I even try and pronounce it, imadacloprid, 65% of that, even before it was banned in agriculture, is used in our domestic pets. It's your flea and worm treatments, your poor run. Yeah. And 
So nearly all of the neonicotinoids used are actually in our domestic pets. You can imagine these poor runs that we're just treating our, our dogs with, then they're going out running, yeah. they'll be passing it through as they, they you know, peeing in the fields or they're jumping in the river, swimming in that. So yeah, it frustrates me. It's one rule definitely. for us and a different rule for others. Definitely. I think, well, I've got to actually, I mean, to treat one dog, an average-sized dog, for a year, the recommended dose of that wormer is the same amount of active ingredient as we'd use to grow uh, 10 acres of all seed rape. That's an incredible statistic. Yeah. Well, it is when you think there's 12 million dogs and 11 million cats, and the amount of active ingredient that we would have used was only equivalent to uh, 100,000 dogs. Puts Good. it into perspective. I don't feel so bad now that I haven't... Um wormed or fleed my dog for the last couple of years there's no need to don't listen to what the vet's going to tell you it's rubbish you don't need to do it not unless they're mixing oh, and yeah but only oh gosh we're going to have lots of complaints come in about that charlie oh, only gosh. Treat them if you need it okay so i'd like to move on if it's okay to talk about the health benefits honey because this is a really interesting one isn't it so we touched on hay fever and there are so many claims um, about the, the great things that honey do. We know it has some antibacterial properties. We know it has some anti-inflammatory properties. So people talk about it, you know, being great if you've got a sore throat, um, the hay fever thing, all these different things. Now, I have to say, though, I think nobody would deny it is a great product. The evidence is quite limited. However, there is one area where we use it very frequently and it is an excellent, excellent product, and that is in wound management. So Manuka honey and medical grade honey produced specifically for use on wounds directly and impregnated in wound dressings is, is very high up, actually, on the options that we have for kind of complex wounds, burns, infected wounds. Um and we see very, very positive results. And it's it's used really quite routinely. And there's lots of thoughts as to how it works. Um, as I say, it has got antioxidants and it has got um, anti-inflammatory properties. But there's also the thought that because of the actual sugar, it kind of draws out uh, fluid from the bugs by osmosis and, and works partly by that as well. So very, very interesting. Um I should say that from um, a dietary point of view, that honey is not recommended below the age of one. That is because it can in, um, it can contain uh, botulinum spores and that can cause infant botulism, um, which is not a problem in 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 adults and older children. Um, I would also say it's really interesting, something that I hear a lot from patients when they say, oh, you know, talking about diet and weight, et cetera, et cetera, and diabetes. And they will often say to me, well, it's OK, because I only have honey and that's natural. Um, and as David Unwin said to us, you know, when we we're chatting the other day, we do have to remember it is natural. It's a really great product. It's not highly processed, but it is still sugar at the end of the day. So we do have to consider it in that. But if you are adding it to, you know, if you are using sweeteners or things in puddings and stuff, honey is a great option um, from that perspective. So great product and some really interesting applications. Yeah, it's interesting with Manuka. We hear about, we hear it a lot, really. A lot of people go, so what's what's the list about Manuka? Um, and as you say, it's used in, in sort of your wound care um, and management. A lot of people think that by eating it, it's having a massive impact and actually it's not 
eating your manuka honey that, that it's actually supposed to be good for, um, it's no different to most other kind types of honey for that reason. Um, it's just how it degrades. It gives off different chemicals that then help with your wound management. Um, so the mechanism as to how it breaks down is different, but that's on the wound itself, not inside you. Um, and so we're often asked, why is it so expensive? Um, and it's a really difficult one to manage because essentially it's good marketing, really. Um, it's used for in a food grade setting. Uh, sorry, it's used in a, a sort of a healthcare setting for a different purpose um, than what people are buying it in the supermarket for. Um, and so it's a really difficult one because uh, people think it's going to sort of save their lives and everything. And actually, it, it's it's not necessarily for for eating in that sense. Um, as how it's used anyway in, in healthcare. <laughs> what actually makes manuka honey? What's different about it? Uh, so it comes from a manuka bush. So it's a specific flower, um, generally grown in New Zealand uh, or Australia, are the two big producers. Um, so it is just the plant, but it's slightly different compositionally uh, to other honeys. And the way that it breaks down uh, is slightly different to other honeys. Um, which, which is why it's used uh, for, for that wound care. And it's interesting talking, you touched on the uh, health benefits uh, nutritionally and sugar levels. Um, I, I haven't got the statistics. I read recently there was research done on supermarket honeys and nearly all of them are not honey. They're just sugar and water, basically. Yeah, it's a bit of a um, known secret, I might <laughs> might be the way to put it um i think our testing in the uk or the testing that's used is fairly old-fashioned as far as it, it there's newer methods um everybody claims the newer methods aren't actually that good but whenever they test test these honeys with the newer methods they all fail so i think you know why they don't think they're good <laughs> there's some vested interest in these old tests being used um essentially the old tests could tell the difference between two different types of sugar um one that's added um or one that it wouldn't naturally be found in honey um and one that is naturally found in honey obviously wherever there's sort of money to be made there's people trying to get around it and so other syrups like rice syrups and things that actually have the same category of sugars as what you'd naturally find in honey are then being added um allegedly obviously um that reduces the value uh sorry what well, reduces the cost of the honey um yeah, it's a major issue. The labelling is really unclear as well. If you look on the back of a jar, it just says a blend of EU or non-EU honey, which is everywhere. Everywhere is either EU or non-EU, <laughs> um, which is a totally pointless thing to say. Um, most of it's imported from, from either China or South America. Um, it's all blended in massive batches, um, which makes traceability almost impossible. Um because because of where it's all coming from and sort of the traceability records before it gets here. Maybe questions as well about them on genetically modified plants as well, then I should. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how it would pull through into the honey, but I'm sure we get, well, a lot of the properties of honey are directly related to the plant that it, it's, it's come from. So I would have expected, yeah, if there was issues with the plant, then you would expect to find that in, in honey. Um, but yeah, it's a real issue because how can you compete with a jar of honey that isn't actually honey. Um, yeah. Honey's not a cheap thing to produce. They, the bees don't produce that much. It's massively weather dependent, uh, more so than sort of any other crop, really. Um, 
and yet you're competing against like a 40p jar of honey in a supermarket that just is not viable in the slightest. And as you say, it's in the newspapers. People seem to know about it. Yeah. But because the testing that's required has been done, there's nothing that trading standards or anyone can do until a new testing regime is sort of improved uh, and brought in, which does actually show that it's uh, it's got these sort of additives in there. Um, so, yeah, a real pain for the industry because everybody knows it's happening, uh, but nobody can do anything about it. I am very lucky. So my next door neighbour is actually a beekeeper and has local hives and keeps me and my family well stocked with Hello. amazing local honey, which we are very, very lucky. So I'll give a shout out to Chris because um, we're, we're very lucky to have that. Um, but I had a look on your website, Matt, and you've got some really interesting, interesting infused honeys and yep. stuff. So tell us what your most popular product is. So the most popular is our runny honey. You can't get away from it. People love the runny honey. That That's what people are used to seeing. It tastes lovely. That's basically our summer crop. So that's what we'll produce through the summer. Um, yeah, that is hands down most popular. Um, cut comb honey, so actual pieces of the comb, really popular. They're the only one that we will, will sell out of every year. We know we just cannot produce enough of it. Um, it's produced up on the heather moors. Um, so it's in limited supply anyway. Um, as you said, we do the infusions as well. That's very different. So they are honeys infused with things like ginger or cinnamon. Um, really, uh, just to taste nice. It's hard to beat just honey, uh, but a lot of people, you know, put their cinnamon on it in the porridge in the morning and things like that. So we've we've got those infusions. So yeah, we just sort of expanded the range. We started with one or two. And then we just keep adding every now and then. Or someone comes up with, oh, why don't you try this? And we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, so we, we make quite a few. I think we've got about 10 different sorts that we do now. And can people buy this online or have they got to swing by Staffordshire? What's the deal? Yeah, no. So we uh, are stocked through all different farm shops through the Midlands. Uh, but it's all available online as well, uh, which is holtwalleyfree.co.uk. Brilliant. And Charlie, I think we have got some questions from some wow. listeners. Is that right? We have. This is yeah. the first. I know. <laughs> and they're not from my family members, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, can you honest... prove that? <laughs> uh, I, I was fascinated and I didn't realize this. Um, you, you breed the Queens. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's at Flongley Show. Your mum was on your stand there and I was chatting to her. Yeah, how do you specifically breed queens? Okay, so um, essentially we get a colony um, without a queen in there. So we've taken the queen out of that colony. Instinctively, they want to produce a new queen. So if we give them any young larvae, so the queen lays an egg, it hatches, it becomes a larvae. So it's like a grub, like a maggot, really, before it pupates and becomes a bee. Um, if we give them a larvae of the right age, they will instinctively turn that larvae into a queen rather than a worker through how it's fed and looked after. Um, we use that then sort of on a larger scale. So in the hive, naturally, the actual purpose of that is that if the queen suddenly died because they'd been attacked, in theory, the eggs that she's already laid and left behind could then be used to create a queen after the queen has already died for a few days. Yeah. Um, but for us, commercially, we will select probably the best 10 or 15 hives that we've got. 
one season and the next year then we will remove the larvae uh, only a few at a time um, in a process called grafting so we'll take a, pick up a few of the larvae we'll put them into this colony without a queen and they'll start producing queens from the larvae that we've already selected so it allows us to select exactly which hives we want to produce queens from in a year um, they can produce probably 20 or so queens per per week that we do that uh, and we'll have a couple of those running um, they produce the queen cell so where the queen is actually sort of being fed and looked after until she hatches we then put them into little colonies that are called mating nukes um, if you imagine like a calf pen would be the equivalent really it's a small <laughs> small colony that they're just being looked after while she grows um, goes out to mate and then she can then go into a full colony and sort of we can then build up more colonies using that method quite quickly um, because we only need the one queen per hive. So we'll select our stock, produce new new queens from that, and then that propagates then further colonies as we go. So what's the lifespan of a queen and a worker? Um, so worker through the it actually depends when they're born they're actually their bodies are different depending on what time of the year they're born which is quite unusual um but generally through the summer about five to six weeks for a worker so not very long at all through um for a queen more like two to three years um i think the oldest one i ever heard of was like seven years old i think um but generally a couple of years the queens will live for um that's actually reducing interestingly um 30 or 40 years ago, queens were living longer than they are now, uh, but we don't really know why. Um, so, yeah, it's, the queen production is a very interesting side of it because you can very specifically pick traits um, of, of the colony itself, sort of yield, um, temperament, uh, all sorts of different things. It keeps it very interesting. And um, of course, beekeeping has become a very kind of fashionable hobby, hasn't it? I was saying to Charlie before we started that... Uh, David Beckham at the start of the Beckham documentary is there with his beehive. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a massive surge in people wanting to start after seeing that. Um, do you train people as well, Matt? Uh, we do some courses. So, yeah, we do some um, sort of beginners courses. We also run a lot of sort of have a go sessions for people that just want to come along, have a go at beekeeping without actually wanting to take it any further. Um, so, yeah, all through the summer uh, from sort of May to September each year. We're running courses uh, up on our farm and getting people sort of hands on with the bees and learning about them because they are just absolutely fascinating. Um, even if it's just a sort of hour session where you just go along and see them, they're, they're just amazing. Everything that goes on in there and how complex they are, really. And uh, yeah, a question that I've just remembered now actually is um, back in the summer, I was working up by the hives and I think I got stung about five times all over my head. I just wondered, have you got public liability insurance or uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, not like if you stick your head in? No. Did you get stung much? Um, now and then, not so much. Interestingly, we've taken on um, an apprentice through the Bee Farmers Association. They're trying to bring in new younger people, um, and she seems to get stung a lot more than me. And I think the longer you keep bees for the less interested they are. I don't know why. When I first went to Australia, my first day there, I got so badly stung. My hands were like double the size. 
But after that day, I hardly got a sting after that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether or not you just get more confident being around them and they just get less bothered or, or what, but it does. Some people do get stung more than others, um, but you can't avoid the sting now and then. <laughs> not in this job. Well, Matt, thank you so much for um, talking us through your company. Um, just remind us again, Matt, where people can come and have a look on your website and where they can buy your products. Yeah, so you can come online to www.holtallapery.co.uk and you'll find it all on there. Brilliant. I look forward to having a look. Um, yeah, it's been great speaking to you, learning more about honey and discussing the benefits for the environment and for health. Um, it's, it's, it's a coincidence, you know, Charlie. I had a beekeeper in today as a patient. Did you? Go on. Came in. I feel a dodgy joke from here. What was it? He had hives. Oh, God. <laughs> the kids will be embarrassed of you. <laughs> anyway, it's been really good chatting to you. And it's been great to have some listener questions. I'm quite excited about that. <laughs> so if anybody has any other questions or future recommendations for guests, please do get in touch. And we are more than happy to cover some interesting topics. Yeah, uh, please give us a listen, give us a follow, uh, tell your friends and you will find us also on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram and we're on Twitter at The Pharmacy Podcast. And we we'll look forward to seeing you next episode. <laughs>